only two churches left in the letters uh, of chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. I know that uh, a lot of people are uh, happy with that. We have been moving extremely slow through the letters to the churches, but we're going to see that it's necessary. you got to have this background before you can even begin to start relevantly and uh, and uh, accurately diving into uh, what the prophecies John is going to be uh, enumerating later in the book. So uh, although this may seem like drudgery, it may seem like uh, it's taking forever and we're uh, belaboring lots and lots of points, uh, it is necessary uh, for us to understand. So today we're going to look at the letter to the church at Philadelphia, and this letter is the it's the other letter uh, of the only two letters that Christ gives nothing but commendation and praises to uh, uh, the church. Uh, the Church of Philadelphia is holding fast to Christ's name, and, and Christ is pleased with their works, and he gives no uh, rebuke or anything to the Church of Philadelphia, and the other church was Smyrna that received no rebuke from Christ. Um, a little background on the city. Philadelphia, of course, you probably know, means the city of brotherly love. Uh, it is uh, it's probably named after Atalus the second who uh, who was called Philadelphus because he was famous for his great love for his brother uh, Eumenes, which who was the king of Pergamum. Uh, this is way back before Christ, hundreds of years uh, before BC. Um, so it, it isn't exactly clear which one of these brothers actually founded the city. Uh, but it's it's uh, pretty clear that uh, it was named for uh, Atalus, who was uh, who was called lover of his brother, uh, and one of these brothers founded the city sometime between 190 BC and 138 BC. So we can't be exactly sure even as to the time of the founding of the city, but it came into being right in there somewhere. Uh, the city of Philadelphia, you know, it's about 30 miles southeast of Sardis, lied at the, it, it lied at the eastern end of a, of a large valley, uh, that, that led down to the Aegean Sea. And the city actually sat on the junction of a, of a widely used trade route, uh, that led to the east, led to, uh, places like Phrygia, Lydia, Mysia, those, those kind of things. And so it, it was very important commercially, uh, not in the sense that it was a commercial center or anything like that although it was um it was a it wasn't a a podunk little village by any stretch of the imagination um it was called by many people the gateway to the east uh the economy of uh, of philadelphia was based mainly on agriculture you know uh, there were different industries in the city just like the other cities but uh, the 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 land the surrounding valley around it was uh, was prime for uh, growing grapes and that was what uh, was uh, uh, philadelphia was was famous for um like Sardis, Philadelphia was also devastated by the earthquake that happened in 17 AD. And just like Sardis, Emperor Tiberius and the Roman Empire aided in the reconstruction and also exempted Philadelphia from paying taxes for a, for a time. In fact, the earthquake took a, a, a larger toll on Philadelphia than Sardis. Uh, the destruction uh, was greater, the devastation was greater in Sardis, but the Greek historian and geographer Strabo tells us that uh, that Sardis was hit harder by the earthquake, and it, it was far worse than Philadelphia, but he also says that Philadelphia was beset for a longer time with the ramifications of the disaster. Um, you know, that would include stuff like insecure walls, the seismic aftershocks that, that went on for years after uh, the great earthquake. Uh, the, these aftershocks took a great mental toll on the people as well, uh, because uh, we know for a fact that uh, uh, for many years after the earthquake, people chose to live and camp outside the city because they just feared the, the buildings were unstable and, and they could collapse at any time. And at any time there could be an aftershock, at any time there could be an earthquake quake and uh, it was just generally unsafe to live there so they would go out and they would come back into the city and they would live outside the, the city um, for Philadelphia you're going to have the same three pressures uh, that plague the church in every other city in, in Philadelphia. Um, you're going to have the pagan culture. You're going to have the imperial cult. You're going to have the, the Jewish people in the city um, just making life tough for the believers. But the letter John writes to the church, it emphasizes the persecution of the church by the Jews in the city. 
there was a thriving Jewish community in Philadelphia. In fact, around the turn of the century, around the turn of the second century, um, the, the end of the end of the first, the beginning of the second century, on his way to being martyred in Rome, Ignatius uh, wrote a letter to Philadelphia addressing the fact that many Christians were moving too far toward adopting Jewish teachings. And so you could see the impact it was already having. Uh, Jewish persecutions and accusations are, are going to be the major focus uh, of John's letter. And last week, uh, last week when we talked about Sardis, I, I mentioned the fact that uh, uh, the persecutions of believers for not bowing down to the gods, not honoring Caesar, and I and I talk, I kind of confused Ignatius and Irenaeus. I want to say that uh, it was Ignatius who was martyred in Rome for uh, for uh, not uh, worshiping the gods, and on his way to Rome, he wrote those those festal letters. So it wasn't Irenaeus. I, I get the two eyes mixed up, Irenaeus and Ignatius. So it was Ignatius that had that had done that. So. Um, as far as the, just like the other cities, there were pagan gods who were worshipped. Uh, the principal deity in Philadelphia was named uh, Anitis, who is a goddess of uh, kind of Persian origin, really. But but in Greek culture, she kind of became conflated with the goddess Meter and Artemis. And, and then, you know, of course, you got the other gods, the usual suspects. I'm not going to just go through all of them again. We've seen them over and over again. Uh, Dionysius, uh, the god of wine, was particularly prevalent because... You know, like we said, the region around Philadelphia was fertile. It was used for grape production. And so <clears throat> you got that. You got the imperial cult, which was alive and well in Philadelphia. The city had its own local cult of Augustus uh, and Rome by 26 B.C. So uh, way before the, the letter uh, was written by John to the Philadelphians, there was already a well-established imperial cult. We have inscriptions from 40 A.D., that tells us that Augustus's birthday was celebrated <clears throat> and sacrifices were offered to the deified emperors, you know, and so you got that going on. And, and just like all the other cities we've seen there, um, <clears throat> they brought persecution, hardship on the church. Um, but what, what I said before, we're going to see here that this letter is going to focus squarely on the persecution that stemmed from the Jewish community there in Philadelphia. In early Christianity, the Jews were, were commonly prone to report Christians to the Romans. We saw that before in another letter. Uh, in fact, I think it was the letter to the Smyrnans. Um, they would, uh, the Jews were exempt from a lot of the worship practices that Rome forced upon, uh, other people, uh, indirectly or directly. And, uh, so Jews were more than happy to make it known that these Christians weren't part of the Jewish community and they weren't subject to the same, um, to the same exceptions that the Jews, uh, enjoyed. So, uh, if Christians refuse to sacrifice, if they refuse to give on homage to the emperors and the, and the city's gods, they were more likely to face persecution and economic reprisals um, because of the uh, the efforts of the Jewish people to uh, separate themselves from the Christians. In fact, the Jews in Corinth tried the same, this exact same thing with Paul. If you read in Acts chapter eighteen, uh, they reported Paul to Gallio and and the the proconsul there in uh, in Corinth and of course we know that Gallio dismissed the case and uh, a lot of things went on there but you you see the tactic it was a tactic for Jews dealing with Christians um, let's just make sure that they know that they're not part of us and they're not subject to these exemptions and therefore the Rome itself will crack down upon them if we'll uh, if we'll just make it known that they're not part of they're not a sect of Judaism they're actually a separate group so so let's start looking at the text of the letter. And we're going to make some observations in this letter that differ somewhat from the other letters. So it's going to be instructive. I hope I hope it uh I hope you get something out of it. Verse 7 says, "And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So the letter begins by addressing the angel of the church of Philadelphia. And then, you know, we've seen this before, the structure of the letters, the address, then the introduction. But here we see something a, a little different. Uh, the descriptions Christ uses uh, to introduce himself are always from the Old Testament, like all the other letters. And they are always directly relevant to the situation in the church. Uh, that's going on the church to whom he's writing and that's the same here but 
so far in the letters, they've all been taken directly from the descriptions of Christ that we saw in Revelation chapter 1. Uh, but when we look a little closer, we see that they, uh, the, this here, the, the, um, the question, the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, no one uh, no, opens and no one will shut and shuts, no one will opens. Uh, those aren't taken directly from, we don't see those descriptions in this exact form in chapter 1. Uh, but if we look a little closer, we see that they do indeed correspond with the picture of Christ in chapter one. So even if they're not direct quotations from the chapter. So let, let's take it apart and look at it first. Jesus said he's the Holy One, the true one. And although we don't see Jesus described explicitly as the Holy One, the true one in chapter one of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful witness. The, the, to be a faithful witness is to be the, is to testify to the truth, uh, which may be a reference to him being the one who is true. Um, I'll let you decide whether you, you, uh, by that or not the the idea of jesus being the holy one though that's found in in isaiah 40 verse 25 it says excuse me to whom then isaiah 40 verse 25 says to whom then will you compare me and i should be like him says the holy one in fact you know i I could point to many passages in isaiah the holy one is used 20 times in, in the book of isaiah to describe yahweh the god of israel the holy one of israel is also used as a it's also used as a messianic title for jesus Jesus in Mark chapter one verse twenty four, Luke chapter four verse thirty four, uh, John six sixty nine. Uh, Jesus is here being identified with the God and Messiah of Israel when he says, "I am the Holy One. I am the Holy One of Israel." They would have known what that what that means. Uh, we're going to see that this is directly relevant to the situation in Philadelphia because it's the Jewish people in the city who are bringing the persecution. Uh, it's, there, it's them who are bringing the hardship to the Christians. So Jesus is making himself very clear. He's going to make some astounding promises to the believers who are characterized as God's true people. And in order to encourage and empower them for their mission. So he begins by showing his authority to do so. He is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus himself is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he alone has the authority to delineate the fulfillment of of uh, of his promises to Israel's patriarchs. Uh, he is the Holy One of whom Isaiah spoke, and he is the true one, meaning he's the true Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel throughout the scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment. When he says, uh, when he says that uh, I am the, the Holy One of Israel, he, he's making sure that they know I'm the one who, uh, who has the right to fulfill these promises. I'm the one who says... Uh, who, who says the door is open for you or not open for you. So you can see how this is going to play with uh, uh, the fact that uh, Christians are being beset by the, the Jewish opposition in the city. Jesus is setting himself up as the authority, and, and indeed he is the authority, but he is letting them know right off the bat, I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the true one. I'm the one who all that the Old Testament has always spoken of. The one you Jewish people who are still devoted to Judaism Ju- Judaism in the wake of uh, the resurrection, uh, who you say you're worshiping, I'm him. Uh, I'm the one. So he kind of reaffirms this when he says, I'm the one who has the key of David and no one can shut the door he opens or opens the door that he shuts. Um, In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus says that he holds the keys. We do have that picture in chapter one. Uh, But the keys there, if you remember correctly, are the keys of death and Hades. So here the phrase death and Hades is kind of is replaced with the key of David. And what this speaks of is the right of entrance and stewardship into God's kingdom. So let me demonstrate that so I can I can prove it from the text without, you know, just saying this is what it means. Uh, the key of David is a direct reference, and it's very interesting, to Isaiah chapter 22. 
Um, look through verses 15 through 25. It's God saying that he is going to replace this false steward of David's house. The guy's name was Shebna. Um, I'm going to replace this false steward, the one who is uh, an imposter, the one who is uh, not representing uh, my name, not representing David's house faithfully. Uh, I'm going to replace him with the faithful steward, and his name was Eliakim in Isaiah chapter 22. So let me just read to you. Isaiah chapter 22, verses 19 through 23. And this is what the Lord says about, uh, about the key of David and replacing this false steward with, a, with the true one. He says, I will depose you from your office. He's talking to Shebna here, the, the false steward. I will depose you from your office and I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son uh, of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. I will drive him like a peg in a firm place and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So you can see where uh, John is drawing this imagery from, where Jesus is, is when he's speaking this, what he's taking this from. He's taking this exact phrase, the key of the house of David. Uh, no one will be able to open what I shut. No one will be able to shut what I open. He is taking this from this uh, um, this uh, uh, declaration in Isaiah chapter 22 that God is going to replace the false servant with the true servant. Uh, and so Jesus is saying, I am the one with the key of David. I, I hope you see the significance of what he's saying. I'm the one with the key of David. And when I open the door, no one shuts. He's using this. Um, we're going to see in this chapter how how relevant this description of Jesus is to the people of Philadelphia. I mean, they are under severe persecution from the Jewish people in the city who were probably causing the Romans to sit up and take notice of them as well. And that would bring persecution. And Christ is here saying that he is the one who says who are God's people. Uh, this uh, same thing we see throughout Romans nine. If you want to go and read Romans nine, when Paul makes the case that not all Israel is of Israel throughout the history of salvation, it has been God's prerogative. He chose Abraham from among the nations for no reason other than his will. He chose Jacob over Esau, uh, to be the carrier of his promise for no other reason. Esau was a, uh, a blood descendant of Abraham, but God chose that the promise would go through Jacob rather than Esau and on and on and on and on. That's uh, found in Romans chapter nine. Uh, here, Jesus is going to make clear that Christ is the steward who has the key of David's legacy and David's kingdom. If Christ opens the door to the kingdom, no man in creation can shut it. Doesn't matter what they say. Doesn't matter what they teach. If Christ shuts the door for those who deny his kingship and deny his divinity and his messiahship, then it doesn't matter what your lineage is or your bloodline. Doesn't matter who you say that you are. No one can open the door that he has shut. Uh, this is, it's going to be very important for our understanding today. And it, boy, it would have been extremely important for the people living in Philadelphia. Um, today you're going to hear uh, you'll hear the term replacement theology thrown around a lot. When someone says this, they, they're usually referring to the belief that the, the church has replaced ethnic Israel as God's people. Um, but to be fair, uh, I, I don't like the term replacement theology. To be fair, I, I, I think it's more biblical, foundational to say that the church is the fulfillment of what perfected Israel was always supposed to be. Jesus Christ has bought and paid for the church, his people with his own blood. And now the people of God are all those who are in Christ, whether they are Jews, Gentiles, slave, free, uh, there is no more distinction. Uh, we're going to talk more about this as we look through the book of Revelation, but you need to be keenly aware 
uh, of the Old Testament example that Jesus uses to identify himself here and know the context of what uh, Isaiah was saying, what God was saying through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 22. Um, the point that uh, the point that Jesus is making is not just that, hey, guys, I got the keys of, of David, you know, David's throne. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the promises that you are claiming to have come from David. He says, I am the fulfillment. I have that. And he uses the, the phraseology that's used to demonstrate when God removes the false servant, false um, steward over David's house and replaces that steward with a faithful one. He uses that exact terminology in the context of Isaiah to describe himself in, in Revelation chapter 2. So this means that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes and plan of salvation in David's kingdom. To reject or persecute him is to cut yourself off from the promises God made to David in his lineage. I hope you understand that. And I know there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, tradition that goes along with this. And that may rub uh, that may rub some people the wrong way. And I, I understand that fully. But uh, I just can't get around. I can't get around. um what uh, what Romans says, what Ephesians says, what Galatians three says. I can't get around what uh, what Jesus says of himself here and the the image that he uses from Isaiah twenty two. We're going to talk more about that in a minute, so we'll just hold off on that for a minute. In verse eight in Revelation chapter three, he says, "I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power." Uh, because you have little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Here again, Jesus says that he is aware of the works of the Philadelphian church. We've seen this before. First thing he says in most of the letters is, I know your works. Uh, he knows their deeds. And, and just as he identified himself in verse 7 as the one who opens and shuts the doors to the covenant, he encourages them by saying that he has indeed set an open door before them. And no one can shut this door. Philadelphian Christians, um, they're going to be persecuted. They're going to face all manner of trials, just like Christians in the rest of the cities that we've seen. But rage as they might, no one can close the open door Jesus has made for them. Jesus himself is the door and the doorkeeper. Those who trust in him have open access to God and the covenant of God. The Lord over the covenant himself has opened a way into the covenant for this people. Now, to be fair, <clears throat> I need to mention that there are many commentators and scholars that see this quote-unquote open door here as an opportunity for evangelism, as if Jesus is saying, uh, I've given you a chance to be a witness. I've given you a great opportunity here. Um, and in interest of full disclosure, the door to the door, a door is used that way several times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it repeatedly that way. It says in first Corinthians 69, uh, Paul says for a wide door of effective service is open to me. And there are many adversaries in second Corinthians two twelve, He says, now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, and then in Colossians four, three, he says, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open a door for us for the word. So there's a precedent in the New Testament for the door to be used this way. But I can't really follow that pattern because the Old Testament image that John uses here isn't about just um, it isn't just about spreading the word of the kingdom or making the kingdom known. It's about uh, if you, you look at the door, you know, I, I open a door that no one can shut and I shut a door that no one can open. That image, the context from the Old Testament is about the removal of a steward of the covenant, a steward of the house of David and the institution of a righteous steward who glorifies the Lord. Um, so. Plus, I think if you take the whole letter into consideration, the Christians needed to be strengthened and empowered against the persecution of the the Jewish people who were claiming to be the people of God. So Jesus here isn't just saying, hey, guys, I've given you an opportunity to be a good witness. Uh, of course, that's true. Uh, but that's true in all the churches. That's true in your life and mine in every believer in every age in every church. Uh, the point here is that he's letting them know that they are his people. And regardless of any persecution or blasphemies against them, nothing could change that. No person can change that. No teaching can change that. Nothing can change that. Jesus also acknowledges that <clears throat> the church at Philadelphia only has a little power. Uh, 
but they've kept his faith and not denied his name. A, a quick survey of the letters to the church, to the other churches, reveals that uh, from a strictly human perspective, the church, uh, they're going to have to choose. They're going to have to choose tribulation, persecution, trial, uh, suffering. Um, or they're going to have to choose to assimilate to the pagan practices of the culture, to uh, the religious systems of the day, or, and lose their identity as Christians. So that's their choice. So from the outside, it, it probably looks like this little powerless church in Philadelphia is destined for either failure or, or annihilation. But the text says that their faithfulness in the midst of being powerless uh, against persecution is exactly why Jesus has set a door before them that no one can shut. Uh, this may not be apparent in some of our English translations, but he says that he has set the door before them because they don't have any power and they have been faithful. Remember that that we have we've repeatedly seen that overcoming and conquering in the letters uh, to the churches of revelation is it's simply being faithful to the profession of Christ in the face of whatever, whatever hardship this entails. Um, this church didn't have a great name like the church in Sardis and they weren't rich like the church in Laodicea, but even though they lacked these outward appearances of greatness, they were faithful. They, they refused to deny Christ's name, even when it seemed like doing so, uh, would be so much easier. Now we're going to get a little more information as about what exactly was going on as we look through the next three verses. So I'll come back and explain a little more about this in a second. In verse nine, it says, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, We've seen this before, uh, specifically in the letter to the church at Smyrna, um, the synagogue of Satan. Uh, incidentally, Smyrna was also the only other church that receives nothing but praise from the Lord. But here in Philadelphia and in Smyrna, Jesus says that those who are of the synagogue of Satan are the ones persecuting them. Uh, now, in chapter 2, when we talked about the church at Smyrna, we talked about the fact that the Jewish people are the only people who met in synagogues and that no one would have any reason to call themselves a Jew unless they were actually ethnic Jews circumcised, holding to the tenets of Judaism. Um, they hold to the teachings. They met in the synagogues. They were the one who, you know, did these things in the city. Uh, they would have said, we are the true sons of Abraham. We are the true heirs of the covenant, as they did in the Gospels. When we read them, um, this same attitude that the Pharisees had before Jesus. Um, but here, Jesus challenges the idea that they're truly Jews at all. He says they call themselves Jews. But they're not. Um, the reason they're not is the same reason we saw in the letter to Smyrna. It's because they deny Jesus as the Christ. And we went into great detail uh, demonstrating why the, the, this couldn't be Gentiles claiming to be Jews or all that. We, we went into great detail about that in the letter of Smyrna. So I would encourage you to go and, and listen to that if you um, have any question about that. Um, now, I said this earlier, but I know this is a very emotional issue for lots of people. So I want to show you the next part of this verse and verse nine and look at the Old Testament background for this as well before you make your final judgment. We've already seen the background in Isaiah chapter 22 um, for the uh, the keys to the, the house of David, the keys of David. So uh, let's look at the Old Testament background for this this part. Jesus says these false Jews are a synagogue of Satan. We've seen that, that term used before. But he promises that he will make them to come and bow before the feet of the Christians in Philadelphia so that they know that Christ, God, loves them. Now, you may not recognize this statement, but any Jewish person steeped in the teaching of the Old Testament would have heard this and it would have sent shockwaves through them. Uh, the statement that he, he he's going to he's making here to come and bow before you so that they will know that God loves you. Uh, it's referencing several passages once again in the prophecy of Isaiah. That's what uh, Jesus seems to be referencing in this letter. Uh, three passages. I'm going to read them all three to you uh, so you get a understanding of what he's saying in, in Isaiah 45 verse 14. Uh, this is what this is what it says. The Lord, the only savior, 
Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down before you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. That's Isaiah 45. Now, Isaiah 49, verse 23, he says, Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then Isaiah first verse uh, chapter 60, verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Any of that sounds familiar? Familiar? Um, yeah, yeah. All these pictures are being used, uh, are being used here in this letter. So what's interesting about this and in those three sections, you have one common theme, the, the, uh, the prophecies in Isaiah, all these prophecies are about Gentile nations that persecute the, the faithful coming and bowing down before the Israel of God. This was part and parcel of the Jews' hope that one day their Messiah would come and bring the kingdom and they would rule as God's beloved and all the other nations would be subject to them and they would be you know, ultimately victorious. Uh, I can imagine Jewish parents throughout the ages comforting their children and their families with these passages saying that one day they would be the head and not the tail. One day the Messiah would come and all those who persecute and subjugate Israel, they're going to bow down down at our feet and, and and all these things. But here Christ himself uses this prophecy, these prophecies of the predominantly Gentile church in Philadelphia. These prophecies are about the ethnic Jews who claim to be Jews but are a synagogue of Satan uh, to these predominantly Gentile Philadelphians coming and bowing before them. It's an extremely ironic turn of events. The, the point he's making is clear and it's those who are in Christ who are the Israel of God and inherit the promises made to God's people. I realize that's going to stick in the crawl of a whole lot of people, and I'm sorry, but it's undeniable from Scripture. And it is something we are going to see over and over again in Revelation. You better get used to it. You might want to go listen to somebody else's podcast if you don't like it, because it's going to come up over and over and over again because it comes up in the text over and over again. Please don't label me as a replacement theologian. Because I hate that term. I do not believe the church replaced Israel. I believe that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of Israel. And that in him, we are the people of God. In him, we are the true Israel. Now, I want to take a second because I know that it's not going to sit well with a lot of folks. I want to take a second. I want to read Ephesians 2 to you. Which is something you probably heard many times. You probably heard lots of sermons on it. This is the section where it says, by grace you've been saved. But I want to slow down and I want you to... Uh, I want you to follow the pronouns with me. Uh, get your own Bible out. Turn it to Ephesians 2. When you understand the argument that Paul's making here in Ephesians, you start to understand the truly remarkable and wonderful thing that God has done in the gospel. Um, in, in Ephesians 2, I'm going to start in verse 11, and I'm going to read all the way through 22. So I want you to stay with me. I'm going to pause here and there and explain a few things, but I want you to stay with me in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 verse 11, therefore remember that at one time, remember Ephesians, Ephesus is a church in Asia Minor. I mean, these are predominantly Gentiles that he's writing to. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, you were once called Gentiles in the flesh by those who are of, quote-unquote, the circumcision. The circumcision is the one that's made with in the flesh by hands, you know, the cutting of the, the, the covenant, so to speak. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, listen to what he says. Remember that you were 
at that time separated from Christ, that's number one, you were alienated from what? The commonwealth of Israel. And number three, you were strangers to what? The covenants of promise. What, do you, what covenants do you think he's talking about right there? He says, and you had no hope and you were that without God in the world. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Near to what? You were far off. You have now been brought near. Near to what? Near to the commonwealth of Israel. It says you were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Now you've been brought near to the commonwealth of Israel. And you were strangers to the covenants of promise. Promise You were once far off, but through the blood of Christ you have been brought near now to the covenants of promise. And he says, for he himself is our peace. Now listen close. Jesus himself is our peace who has made us, who is us, the Jews and the Gentiles, both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create, listen, in himself one new man in place of the two. What are the two? The two are the Jew and the Gentile. He says that he might break down that wall in his flesh, dividing the wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in how many bodies in one body through the cross, Jew or Gentile. He says that he's going to reconcile us both to God in one body, thereby killing hostility. It says, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He's talking about the same two groups of people. Those who were near the covenants is Israel. Those who are far off are the Gentiles. He said he came and preached peace to you both who were far off and those who were near. He says for through him, listen, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. What did he say you were alienated from and strangers to in a few verses earlier? He said you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. He says now you are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. You are no longer alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. He says, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief, being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, the whole thing being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord in, in him. You are also being built together together in him. You plural are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. Now, I don't I don't see how you can follow the pronouns and the argument that Paul's making there in Ephesians and say that there's still a dividing wall. The dividing wall has been broken down. And now, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, whether you're male, female, slave free, God's people are those who receive the fulfillment of all the promises of the of the covenants in Christ Jesus. Uh, there is there is still room for us to understand that there will be a time when ethnic national Israel comes to faith in the Lord Jesus in mass. So I don't discount that at all. In fact, Romans chapter 11 seems to point to just that fact. So, you know, I don't have any problem with that. But if ethnic national Israel comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that makes them my brothers and sisters and part of the church. God has only ever had one people and that people have always been united to him by faith. And the fulfillment of all the covenant promises is found in a real national ethnic Israelite. His name is Jesus Christ. So that's just a side note, free sermon for you. So after Dr John just dropped a hand grenade in into the, the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and so after he did that, did that in verse nine, 
In verse 10, he says to the church at the Philadelphians, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Uh, Jesus gives um, these persecuted believers a promise that he will keep them from the trial that is coming you know, to those who dwell on the earth. Um, this verse here has inspired um, uh, a lot of talk, a, a lot of talk about uh, the rapture of the church and God taking away the believers before the big tribulation that is coming to the world. Uh, but in this context, the context of this letter, um, I don't really see how that's possible. Um, you know, we'll talk about the idea of rapture and and the the snatching away of of believers, which is definitely taught in in uh, Thessalonians, but um, it 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 doesn't fit here. It doesn't make sense, and it, it just defies all logic and and any coherent understanding of this text to see the rapture of the church here. Um, I mean, first. I assume that at least at the time of this recording, the the rapture hadn't taken place yet. I hope not. Anyway, uh, I, I mean, if you're if you're listening to this, you obviously have been raptured. So maybe you probably need to check around, see if your friends are home or or whatever. But remember that this letter was written specifically to a first century church in Asia Minor. It was written to the Philadelphians. Uh, it was these believers who were being persecuted and it was these believers who stayed faithful. It was these believers who were promised uh, to be kept uh, from the hour of trial. Uh, if the rapture is being referred to here, it really wouldn't make any sense. Uh, and it, it kind of would prove Jesus a false prophet unless he meant that he would keep them from the hour of trial because they'd be dead for 2000 years before the rapture happened. Uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't raptured out of the, the trial that did come upon the province of Asia. Uh, and they've been dead for 2000 years and the rapture still hasn't taken place. So I don't see how we can see the rapture being, um, being talked about here when it says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Um, second, we we need to remember that there are six other churches who received letters in Revelation. Only two of those churches don't receive some sort of uh, commendation or praise from Jesus. It was Sardis and Laodicea. Those are the only two churches that don't that uh, don't have anything good about them. Uh, and and this church and Smyrna receives nothing but praise from Christ. Yet this is the only church where Jesus promises to keep them from the trial that's coming. Um, yeah, in fact, the, the Smyrnans are told to be faithful, even though it's going to cost them their lives. It says, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. So what does it mean here? I mean, what I'm saying is all that to say that if, if you see this as a, a, a rapture, uh, to take them away from the hour of trial, then Philadelphia was the only one who got it. It was, uh, it was a special rapture for the Philadelphians. The, the Smyrnans weren't raptured and the, you know, and, and, it just just defies logic. It defies what the Philadelphians would have understood when they first read this letter. So l let's talk about what it means. Uh, historically here, we're, we're kind of in a vacuum because we don't really have any records about Philadelphian Christians and the specific tests and tribulations that they went through. So uh, the best we can do from that vantage point is just speculate. And, and I don't want to do that. So. Um, I'm just going to look at the text itself. Jesus says that he'll keep them from the hour of trial. Uh, the words, the word keep is tereo, and uh, here it's used in the future, tereso. And the word from or out of is the word ek. So uh, in, in the Greek text, they're together, tereso, tereso ek, which means uh, to, you know, I will keep from you, the, you know, and, and so word order is different in Greek. So uh, the only other time that the word tereo is used with the preposition ek, which means out or from, uh, is in is in John seventeen fifteen. the same author. Um, Jesus uses this phrase uh, to keep from uh, in a similar context in John 17. John 17 is the high priestly prayer. Jesus
Jesus says, uh, it's where he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from uh, the evil one. Now, that may not be very convincing to you, but it tells me, especially since John is the author of both Revelation and the Gospel of John, that Jesus tells them here in Revelation that this keeping them from the hour of trial, keeping them uh, from the hour of testing or out of the hour of testing, is it, it's not a removal so they won't be tested. It's an empowerment to sustain them in their faithfulness as this test goes on. Uh, notice the reason that this hour is coming in the verse. If you look at Revelation, what is it? Verse 10, verse 9, it's verse 10. And look at the reason. I hope you're looking at the verse. Uh, look at the reason why he says that the hour is coming. Jesus says that it's coming to test those who dwell upon the earth. Uh, test or try, the same word in Greek. And so what Jesus is talking about here is not not just a huge tribulation of suffering for the sake of punishment or judgment that that's going to come we're going to see that it's most certainly going to come later but what he's talking about here is the testing of one's faith of the testing of one's profession the hour of trial that he's sending upon the whole earth is order to test mankind in order to try mankind so what you see here is a promise of empowerment to persevere uh, that's something that you and i need to hear no matter what day and age we're living in uh, there will always be persecutions always be hatred of believers from the world uh, but believers are called to persevere and be faithful regardless of what trial we must endure now if you're like me you look at all those martyrs throughout history those people that have stood for the faith and died for the faith and you know your own heart as, as well as i know my own heart and it it causes me to think, you know, I would never be strong enough to do that. I would never be uh, faithful enough to stand in the face of all of that. Um, I don't I don't know if I can handle what they went through. But here's the thing you, you and I need to understand. For believers, God gives us the grace that we need and the strength that we need at the moment that we need it. Remember what Jesus said, uh, that when they drag you into the courts, don't worry about what you'll say. Just open your mouth and the Spirit will tell you what to say. Uh, Christ promises here to be faithful and to empower those that are going to go through this test and this trial that they're going to face uh, because of his name. Uh, we live and move through his power and strength. It is not by our own force of will that we endure for his name. It's by his empowerment and his strength. So when you look at those martyrs, you can say, yes, Irenaeus or Ignatius was faithful. Yes, Polycarp was faithful. Yes, they were faithful. But it was the grace of God in them, the strength of Christ in them that caused them to be faithful. It was the empowerment. And in verse 11, as we continue, you're going to see more of this. It says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Jesus again tells them that he's coming. He's coming. Uh, he told the church at Ephesus he was coming. He told the church at Pergamum he was coming. He told the church at Sardis he was coming. And here again, he tells Philadelphia, I'm coming soon. In all those other churches, though, Ephesus, Pergamum, Sardis, uh, his coming to them was not a good thing. He says, you watch what you're doing or I'm going to come to you quick. I'm going to remove your lampstand. I'm going to come to you like a thief in the night. You're not going to know when I'm coming. Here, Jesus is speaking of the hour of trial uh, that's coming. There is indeed a judgment coming and it's coming in the first century and those seven churches will see it we'll talk more about that later but the point jesus is making here is that when he comes in judgment these believers will receive the victory crown the stephanus the stephanos that we talked about before because they have held fast to their profession of Christ. The church at Philadelphia is commanded to hold fast to their profession and to persevere so that no one takes this victory from them. Uh, perseverance in Scripture is always linked to assurance. It's always linked to, to assurance. There are many people today that, you know, they they have assurance of salvation simply because they repeated a prayer, believe some facts about Jesus. But biblical assurance is always, always, always linked to perseverance, linked to faithfulness. Now, this in no way means that salvation itself can come and go in a person's life. You've already heard me say I don't believe that. I believe the scripture is emphatic about the fact that uh, who Christ saves, he saves eternally. But it does mean that those who are truly saved and assured of their salvation because of the new heart and life they possess, they will 
persevere in the faith. They will continue. When they try to step off the path, the good father, the good shepherd will come and discipline them. He will come and retrieve them. We could go into a whole doctrinal discussion about that, but the reality is taught throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we see warnings like this one. The point is that the person who is not persevering in the faith has no reason to be assured of anything. So let me say that again. Uh, just because you prayed a prayer, just because you walked an aisle, just because you're a member of a church doesn't mean it means doodly squat. Your profession of Christ is meaningless if there is no evidence that Christ is working in your life. Uh, we can go through First John, and I can prove that point by point to you if you'd like. I'm working through a sermon series on First John. Go and listen to that. Uh, so he says, hold fast so that no one takes your crown. This is a, a valid warning. I believe in the security of the believer. I believe in the perseverance of the saints. And that, that does not strip the teeth from this warning. It says if you are not persevering, if you're not holding fast, you don't have any assurance to, uh, to believe that you possess uh, or, or will possess this victory when Christ comes. Um, chapter 3, verse 12 in Revelation, continuing on, it says, The one who conquers, here's the part where we see the overcomer, the conqueror, we've seen it over and over again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my, my own new name. Now, there are four elements in this verse, but they're not four separate promises, like many people say. They are four descriptions of one promise. That's eternal life. We've seen it in the structure of the letters that we've gone through over and over again. Uh, this is the part where he promises eternal life to the one who conquers, to the one who overcomes. The conqueror is the one who perseveres in holding Christ's name and perseveres through trial. Uh, being made a pillar in the temple of God demonstrates the permanence of being in the presence of God in the Septuagint. The Greek Old Testament, the poles supporting the tabernacle, tabernacle are called pillars in Exodus 26, uh, that whole chapter, specifically verses 15 through 25. And there were two bronze pillars that stood at the entrance to Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 7. Um, for this predominantly Gentile church besieged by Jews claiming to be the true people of God, Jesus is promising them that they are indeed part of God's true temple. And that Jesus Christ, uh, through Jesus Christ, they are permanently part of the house of God. The New Testament repeatedly calls the church the temple of God, as well as individual believers in whom the Spirit resides. They are the temple of God. And, of course, it doesn't take much skill to understand what Jesus means by saying he'll write on them uh, the name of his God, the name of the city, his own name. Uh, we've seen this before. Um, this is the picture of Christ's ownership over his people, their citizenship in the new Jerusalem for eternity. Uh, promise of eternal life is what it boils down to. And then, of course, you got the familiar, you know, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I would characterize this church as an empowered church. The true people of God who are kept through all the trial and testing that goes on in the world they are promised eternal life. And I want you to go back and, and read the read the letter without my comments, the letter to um, uh, Philadelphia. And I want you to notice all the uh, the the references to uh, Judaic Old Testament references that he makes. He, he calls himself the Holy One of Israel. He calls himself the one with the key of David. He he says that the, these Gentile Christians will be part of the temple, the true temple of God. Over and over and over again, he tells them to persevere and he uses these figures showing that they are truly the people of God. They are truly the heirs to the promise, heirs to the covenant through Jesus Christ. And so it's an encouragement to me. It's a should be an encouragement to you that uh, this church, these people in Philadelphia who were faithful, they are given the promise of being empowered when that trial does come, when that testing does come. They will persevere not because they're so strong and they're so wonderful. They'll persevere because God is in them and he will strengthen them.